Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. Once Every Two Weeks, the Berghoff School of Classical Vaudevillian Ventriloquism accepts new prospects into its intense training program. So here on the podcast, we take a look at the history of speaking with your mouth closed, traditional materials and methods of ventriloquial figure construction, as well as deep dive into the lives and careers of such prominent ventriloquists as Edgar Bergen, Ray Allen, Jules Vernon, Albert Savine, Joseph Alvin Gladstone, and of course, the incomparable Fred Russell. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school, join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. sir i'm doing all right how about yourself sir you know mark i am doing very well tonight glad to hear it what have you been up to my dog went away for training for six weeks and she came back and does not listen has an open infection on her leg has giardia and hookworms well i guess you better put her down it would have been a lot cheaper but it's a dog i like so (laughs) can you get a refund from the school Or is it like regular school where they won't give you refunds for being completely useless? I don't know. We'll see. I'm dealing with all of that now. It'll be fun. What have you been up to, Mark? My brother's been out of town for a few days, and so I went over and sat on their dog. So I finally was able to catch up on some Disney Plus stuff that I'm much too behind on. Oh, what'd you watch? I was finally able to finish the latest season of The Mandalorian, finished She-Hulk, and finally got around to watching both the latest Ant-Man and Wakanda Forever. How do you feel about She-Hulk? For the most part, I enjoyed it. I liked that they were doing something different, that they were taking a different approach from it just being a straightforward superhero thing. You know, I just couldn't get over the CGI. We've seen them do Hulk so many times before, I don't know why it was so difficult. That aspect of it didn't bother me so much. Plus, I just appreciate that they found a way to give us more Daredevil. Yeah. I love Daredevil, and I appreciate Charlie Cox's portrayal of Daredevil. I think he's done a great job with the character, and I like that they're letting him do more with it finally. Cool. I'm not a big Marvel guy, so I may give Daredevil a try, though. When I started getting into comics, I don't know if Frank Miller was currently doing them or if just all the Daredevil comics I picked up had been Frank Miller Daredevil comics, but that was my exposure to the character, so I was immediately into the character because the character was kind of dark and brooding and brutal, and so I enjoyed that. I get it. That's one of the reasons I love Frank Miller's Batman so much. And usually just Batman in general. Batman is my favorite. I really do like, I mean, Miller's one of my favorite Batman authors. Yeah, him and Jeff Loeb. Jeff Loeb is so good. Yeah. But I do like Grant Morrison as well. You know what else we both like? Bush. Yes. We also both like the band Bush. I do like the band Bush, which is what we're covering tonight. We're going to discuss Bush, who was pretty big back in the day. We're specifically discussing their second album, which is Razorblade Suitcase. Released on November 19th, 1996. Their sophomore album released our freshman year. 
I was already a Bush fan before this came out. I think the first CD I bought for myself was 16 Stone. It was also my first band t-shirt was a Bush shirt. I had the shirt with, um, oh, what was his name? Winston? Yeah, with Winston standing up and jumping on my shirt. So that was fun. I just realized that my brother John's dog is also named Winston. Does he have dreads? No, he does not have dreads. He looks very much like Snowball from Rick and Morty. Much less cool than Gavin's Winston. Yes, but I get to stare at him and, and ask, where are my testicles, Summer? <laughs> uh, Bush is a band that formed back in 1992 when Dreamboat frontman Gavin Rossdale, who had just left a band called Midnight, met Nigel Polesford, who had previously been in a band called King Blank. They met at a concert in Wembley Stadium. What I like about every time I read this story being told is that they always talk about how they were at a show to see the band Baby Animals, but they gloss over the fact that Baby Animals was the opener because nobody wants to admit that they were really there to see the headliner, Brian Adams. <laughs> when they met, they started playing music under a band named Future Primitive with heartthrob Gavin Rossdale on lead vocals and rhythm guitar. Nigel Polesford was lead guitar and backing vocals. They then brought on Dave Parsons, who was the bassist, and Robin Goodridge was the drummer early on. They released the song Bomb independently under their future primitive band name. And how long did that last? It did not last long at all. They had changed their names by 1993. Okay. Do you know why they changed their name to Bush? No. I wish there were a better story. The band picked the name Bush because they lived in Shepherd's Bush in West London. Bush does sound better by itself than Shepherd's Bush. And I guess you could admit that, like with Muse, it's a nice short name that looks good on a poster. It does. So in 1993, they signed with Rob Kahane at Trauma Records. And it became a joint venture between Trauma Records and Interscope Records. Just for reference, Kahane was doing some pretty good stuff at this time. He had signed, no doubt, The Flies, Funk Junkies, and quite possibly, and most importantly, Shaquille O'Neal's Superfriend Volume 1 and the soundtrack for the Olsen Twins movies like Holiday in the Sun and When in Rome. Aw, snap. Yeah. There were a lot of legal troubles between Interscope and Trauma Records before, finally in 2004, Trauma became a subsidiary of Interscope Records. Their debut album, 16 Stone, was supposed to be released by Disney's music group, Hollywood Records. Hmm. But they had a big backer and advocate who was friends with Kahane named Frank G. Wells, who died. And after he died, Hollywood Records decided against releasing the album. So it went to Interscope Records. And their debut album went on to peak at number four on the U.S. Billboard 200 with two top 40 songs and sold over 6.1 million copies, of which I personally bought two. I don't think I have purchased 16 Stone. I've come to appreciate it, but originally I didn't really care for Bush all that much. Everything Zen was the first Bush song I ever heard. There's something about just the way that the song opens where he talks about his asshole brother that rubbed me wrong. It felt like they were trying too hard to be cool and edgy. It took me a while to come around and actually give them a chance. Or was it the fact that you felt particularly called out as that brother in your family? No, no. I've always identified with the Royal Tannenbaugh philosophy that I've been an asshole for as long as I can remember. It's just my style. <laughs> I don't think you've known me to be any other way. No, I have not. 
I really haven't. Musical darling Gavin Rossdale is known for his voice, but that was almost his foil. American Songwriter article says, For at least a little while, Gavin Rossdale says his voice was actually an obstruction to his success, not the reason for it. The gravelly-voiced frontman of the UK group Bush says that when he and the band were on the rise in the early 90s, there was a wave of music that didn't quickly welcome in a rough, raw singer like Rossdale. At the time, Britpop was all the rage with bands like Blur, Oasis, and Suede topping the chart. But Rosdale was more into and reflected groups like Soundgarden, Soul Asylum, and Jane's Addiction. Hmm. It's such a signature voice that it's hard to think that, that it would be problematic. Especially with just how big it became here in the States, which they never gained the notoriety in their home island that they did in the colonies. Now, you say that he's known for his voice, mm-hmm. whereas I would argue that the habitually handsome Gavin Rosdell is best known for his looks, and he would actually agree with me. In an interview, he's known for saying, I know that sometimes we get accused of being a band that's successful on account of my average cheekbones, but it is a good band. I'm not the most arrogant person in the world, but I'm going to start to be. I'm sort of sick of being misrepresented. And I would even go so far as to say that he is so good looking, his looks were able to launch the acting career of mega hottie Gavin clone Skeet Ulrich, which he then was able to leverage into an acting career of his own, (laughs) most notably playing the part of Balthazar in the Keanu Reeves comic book movie adaptation of Constantine. He also had a cameo in Zoolander as well as roles on a handful of other feature films, plus episodes of television on shows such as Criminal Minds, Hawaii Five-O, and Burn Notice. He was not a good guy on Criminal Minds. I imagine if you're a bit character on most of those shows, you're probably not playing the good guy. It was so cheesy, though. He played this goth rocker. I don't remember his name on the show, but he had a a vampire-esque alter ego called Dante. Awesome. It was something. For the first time ever, I want to watch an episode of Criminal Minds. (laughs) In an interview with YM, he was asked, what are the characteristics of a Bush song? And I really liked his answer, which was, I hope a sense of reality. Wouldn't it be much more interesting to hear boys to men as to their lifestyle and who they are instead of like, ooh, girl. I agree. And I think that's applicable to most pop groups, not specifically just boys to men. So a quote that I came across where mega hunk Gavin Rosdell is talking about his songwriting process, he says, I consider myself a completely instinctive songwriter. I don't know how to write songs. No one ever showed me. I just kind of fumble my way through it, and I'm always grateful when I write one. Hmm. And so for the most part, he is self-taught. Cool. Let's go ahead and talk Razorblade Suitcase. As we said, this is their sophomore album. Mm-hmm. It was recorded in abbey road studio in london and it was produced by someone with some notoriety and controversy around this time steve albini if that name sounds familiar we talked about him briefly when we did our nirvana episode we did because he was the original producer for in utero steve albini is a singer he plays guitar bass and drums he's a songwriter and a music producer He was in bands like Big Black, Rapeman, Flower, and he's currently in a band called Shellac. He is 
always been very critical of the music industry, a point that I think he and Mark share a little bit of kindred mindset on. How does he feel about Pitchfork? (laughs) His general philosophy on how his job as a producer should work is highlighted when he says, I would like to be paid like a plumber. The record company will expect me to ask for a point or a point and a half. If we assume 3 million sales, that works out to $400,000 or so. There's no effing way I would ever take that much money. I wouldn't be able to sleep. He says it's unethical the way that artists themselves get paid. And kind of his magnus opum is this article he wrote for The Baffler back in 93 called The Problem of Music where he outlines how record labels take advantage of musicians and exploits them. He did this really interesting breakdown. I'll put a a link in the show notes too. But basically, he looks at how if a band sells 250,000 albums after being ripped off by the label, they have about $14,000 in royalties. But the label made a gross profit of three quarters of a million dollars. And each band member would walk away with maybe four grand. Or as he puts it, quote, a third of what they would have made working at 7-Eleven. Albini produced other bands. He was known to produce The Breeders, PJ Harvey, Superchunk, Low, Slint, Jawbreaker, Chevelle, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, Did Helmet, Manic Street Preachers, Cheap Trick, and Veruca Salt. And now I think it's time that we dive a little bit into the in utero drama because it's going to be important in how we discuss this album later. I believe that we did touch on it briefly that Albini was the producer of in utero and both the band and the label weren't entirely happy with the end result. Mm -hmm. And Albini was standoffish to the point of refusing to make any adjustments like remixing it so you could actually hear the vocals. And bass that was one of Kurt Cobain's complaints was that you couldn't hear the bass after Albini had this falling out with Nirvana he attributes this to him falling out of favor with record labels more broadly which I think he was probably perfectly okay with pissing off the labels probably gets the musicians to be more on your side that's fair you know you and I had a an impromptu chat we hadn't planned it It was just a phone call we had and we were talking about this album and our memories of it Mm -hmm. and you brought up some complaints on the back half of this album that will hit a little more in depth but basically some of the same frustrations that the label and nirvana had with in utero we found in this album but for now hottie with a body gavin rossdale did an interview with deseret news where he said he wrote this album in about a month i was trying to write songs while my life was falling apart while my longtime girlfriend of five years was leaving and packing in one room i was writing in the other interesting you can kind of hear throughout the album there is kind of a sense of alienation and despair oh for sure you definitely hear that throughout the album those things considered, it's not that big of a surprise that the working title for the album was Ghost Medicine, which is kind of a, I guess, poetic, abstract idea. It makes sense. And while we don't know exactly why the title was changed, we do know that the phrase Razor Blade Suitcase while taken from the song Synapse, which is track 10 on this album, it's kind of eternally dreamy Gavin Rosdell's personal interpretation of the term emotional baggage. Huh. Just much more brutal. Much more brutal. The album focuses on three main ideas and problems as outlined by Nicholas Slayton's article from 2014, Hell is Where the Heart Is, being trapped in situations with no way out, fallout from relationships, and then loneliness and isolation. Hmm. 
I get a lot of that through both the musical tones and the delivery, but I don't know that I always get that from the lyrics because Bush as a whole for me is one where it seems like mega hunk Gavin Rosdell's lyrics are always more stream of conscious. Yeah, that's fair. Although there is a lot of descriptive imagery that goes along with drugs and then isolating terms and a real obsession with insects in this that we'll get into. The album was released November 19th, 1996. While this was about two years after 16 Stone, 16 Stone had been so successful that the record label kept putting out singles with the final single, Machine Head, dropping in April of 96, just six months before the first single from Razorblade Suitcase was dropped. Now, that might seem like a good bit of time, but Machine Head itself was pushed out five months after the fifth 16 Stone single. 16 Stone just kept finding new life on the radio. The hype never went away for it. The demand for 16 Stone was so big that by the time Razorblade Suitcase dropped, it was almost a surprise that they had a new album. There was still so much hype around 16 Stone that I think that's a major contributing factor to why the label was disappointed by the performance of Bush's second album. And to an extent, it was their own fault for pushing and milking 16 Stone as much as they did. Bush wanted to originally release the album in early 97, but it was decided to do that late 96 release instead because U2 was getting ready to drop in 97 and they were afraid it would get overshadowed. Right, because you can't have two albums dropping in a single year. No, not no, not if you want to make money. The album critically was kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, I was kind of baffled looking at the reviews by how many people didn't love it. A lot of the reviews talked about how it didn't seem like it was as quote-unquote radio-friendly as 16 Stone, which is baffling because at least the first half of this album sounds like any of these songs could be interchangeable with anything else off of 16 Stone. It sounds like a solid Bush record to me. I just want to go through some of the critical reception because it was all over the place. All Music gave it three and a half stars, whereas Rolling Stone gave it two, NME gave it one out of ten, Spen gave it a five out of ten, Select gave it three out of five, and The Independent reviewed it poorly. Entertainment Weekly, the reviewer David Brown, basically criticized and said that this sounds like it could have been an unreleased Nirvana album. That was the other thing that I came across was a lot of people saying how much they sound like Nirvana, and I don't get that at all. Okay, I'm really glad to hear that because that was a... I had a criticism of the critiques. I don't think this sounds like a Nirvana album to me. And I get it. The people talk about the Courtney Love influence, the use of Steve Albini. It doesn't have that same sound to me. Courtney herself at this time said that she didn't think they sounded anything like Nirvana either. And as much as I hate to agree with anything that Courtney Love says, if anyone has an idea of what Nirvana does and does not sound like, it was her because she was constantly trying to steal all of Kurt's good songs. Yeah. To an extent, like, I understand the idea that he doesn't have a pretty singing voice and the guitars have feedback and distortion to them. But by no means was that an exclusively Nirvana-only sound. Not at all. It's just asinine. 
I think you found some quotes from Adonis Gavin Rossdale with that give us his take on the journalists that he was encountering at the time, right? Yes. Rock and roll hottie Gavin Rossdale was quoted as saying, never trust a journalist. I'm actually referring to magazine journalists. There's so much armchair philosophy from these substandard magazine writers. It's just unbelievable. But life goes on. It's hurtful, but not as hurtful as being homeless. So I have perspective at least. And that's taken from a 1996 article from the Tampa Bay Times entitled Bush Heartthrob Taking a Beating. (laughs) So we're not the only ones constantly saying it. But I like that quote because I agree with him completely about the sloppiness of music journalists. And just the way that he's able to look at it and still keep things in perspective. I think that's admirable for somebody who's at the level that he was at at the time. Yeah. He's trying to stay humble, despite what his other quote may have suggested. And not enveloping his entire identity up to what others are saying about him or what he's reading about himself in the reviews. Yeah, he's trying to let the music speak for itself. And speaking of the music... First track out of the gate is Personal Holloway. What is Holloway, Mark? Holloway was a women's prison in the UK. It was built in 1852 and turned into a women's only facility in 1902. And it stayed that way until its closure in 2016. And at the time, it had been the largest women's detention facility in Western Europe. Hmm. I also came across a bit of an article talking about the song, about how the song itself lyrically is meant to be a feminist anthem. And some of the phrasing in here are taking some kind of stereotypical chauvinistic ideas about women and then giving some female perspective about how like marriage and traditional things can be as their own prison, as it were. Hmm. It can be for men, too. You're saying marriage can also be a women's prison for men? Yes. (laughs) We have our first medication reference in this song, too. Yep. It opens with a dirty feedback wall that feels instantly recognizable to those familiar with Bush's first album. Mm-hmm. And right out the gate, it's Bush sounding like Bush. So I don't know what the problem is that all of the negative reviewers had with the album. I don't either. I don't feel like this sounds that far removed from 16 Stone. Not at all. We do have that very stream of conscious typical one idea to the next to the next to the next that we had on 16 stone i don't know what the problem is but this one just didn't set with me the way some of the other ones did i don't love this song don't hate it don't love it it's because you love the band and you're getting too greedy i am i'm like a greedy fly which was the second song and their second single from Razorblade suitcase when i bought this album i remember this song this was when i was like okay i really like this album i like the dark undertone not that well i like what you wrote here i'll let you say it Like you, when this first came out, it was one where it was kind of easy to immediately describe this one as having a darker sound, but really Bush at large has never been super bright and happy. They don't have a shiny, happy people vibe. No. So as I've been thinking about this song, thinking more critically of it, I don't think that saying it's a darker sound is accurate because Bush has always had a bit of a darkness in their sound. And so I think a term like subdued or understated might better serve what's happening with this track because it's still Bush sounding like Bush on a solid rock track, but it feels like they're intentionally holding back rather than going all balls out like they had been 
been doing on a lot of other stuff at the time. So in a way, it's kind of showing growth and almost a newfound maturity. I can agree with that, but there's something about that guitar solo where it's him picking the guitar that just has an eerie vibe to it. Yeah. Maybe eerie more so than dark. Yeah. But I also want to give a shout out to the solid, beefy bass tone that is underlying the whole track. Absolutely. But we really don't get a clear view of until nearly four minutes in when everything else but the bass drops out for just a single bar. And then that bass is all just super low and rumbly and delicious. And then everything else comes back in and it gets lost back under the mix. But just like that brief little moment of it was nice to see just that one aspect at play and how it fit the rest of the track on the whole. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I would like to hear more of that bass throughout the song. Mm -hmm. But if we heard the bass, that pop at four minutes wouldn't be a pop anymore. No, where it pops is really effective because it was kind of a tension-grabbing thing before the bass line goes back to being swallowed by the rest of the track. (laughs) Two points for this segue into song number three, which was their first single from this album, Swallowed. As I was listening to this one and making my notes, it's almost like Sonic Stud. Gavin knew I was going to say on the prior song that Bush never wrote bright, upbeat songs and composed (laughs) Swallow simply to spite me. Because I don't know how better to describe this track other than bright and kind of upbeat at least tonally, because lyrically it's not. It's an interesting song in general. When interviewed about this, Hunka Hunka Burnin' Love, Gavin Rossdale, said for an NME article in 2017 that the song was written, quote, just after we had loads of success with the first record. When you first climb the ladder, if you're lucky enough, and I was lucky enough to have that insane success with it, it's a bit overwhelming in some ways. I didn't go to school where you learn how to prepare for any kind of success. I was English. I'd failed for many years. I was not used to being successful. And there was something about being swept up in the success that's daunting and really overwhelming. It wasn't a complaint. It was an observation. Interesting. Another interesting point with Swallowed. Yeah. The music video was directed by a gentleman named Jamie Morgan, who had been a fashion photographer. Swallowed was the very first music video that he directed, and Third Eye Blind liked the video so much, they hired him to direct their video for Semi-Charmed Life. That is really interesting. Do you remember this video? I don't. Greedy Fly is pretty much the only video that I kind of remember, and mostly I remember it because I remember how much there was a corn video that came out shortly after that seemed like it was ripping off the Greedy Fly video. And it was just one more reason why I've always disliked corn. Couldn't it be the music itself, though, as a good reason? No, oh, like I said, that was one of many reasons. So I want you to go watch the video for this. I think you'll like it a lot. Okay. This is the one where they had like a cross in the background, right? Like a neon cross. The red neon cross that you see in the background reflected in his eyes. But more importantly, he wears a shirt that is quintessentially 1996 to 2000 Mark Andrew Ricks. He stole a shirt from my closet? That dreamy bastard. (laughs) It looks like he did. But it's a great video. It really is. And I remembered it. I went and watched it when I saw your notes. And I was like, oh, I do remember this video. Well, the reason I mentioned the cross is because that's what they ended up using as the cover for Deconstructed. Yes. Which we will talk about in another couple of tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I love the song and I love the vibe. It's really focused on isolation. The repeated line in here is swallowed. Oh, no. I'm with everyone and yet not. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and they talked about missing the one that he loves a lot. You just feel this isolation and longing that was so high school in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) The next song I think you're going to love more because I know how much you love America's Sweetheart, Courtney Love. (laughs) And that's when I walked out on our podcast. (laughs) This song is supposedly about a relationship he had with Courtney Love, a sexual relationship, while he was with Gwen Stefani. And I'm getting this from an article about an interview with Courtney Love on Howard Stern. All of this is because there was one review that mentioned that the song was about Courtney Love, and that was a review in 2014. Has Gavin ever acknowledged that it was actually about Courtney? Has he ever said that this song was? Or is it just that one interview's interpretation of past events? I don't know. It's generally accepted now. He has not denied it. It is everywhere. And he has not even acknowledged to anything I can find whether he did or did not have a relationship with Courtney Love. He has acknowledged it. Oh, he did? He has talked about how they had gone out a couple of times and specifically in response to this claim of the affair, he says that anything that had happened between him and Courtney had happened pre-Gwyn. And while we may never actually be able to confirm an established timeline of anything happening, on the subject of whether or not they actually slept together, Reddit user The Burning Beard very astutely pointed out this would be easy to confirm. Simply check to see if Gavin Rosdell's dick fell off. (laughs) That's cold. More importantly, though. Since when did we just blindly start believing anything that Courtney Love says about anything? Because in the same Howard Stern interview where she made these claims, she also talks about having had visions of doing things with Gavin. And if there's anyone who can't tell reality apart from the crazy shit that's going on in their head, my money would be on that person being Courtney Love. (laughs) (laughs) This is fair. She also isn't super reliable as a source on this subject because she's known to have a long-standing feud with Gwen Stefani. And she's also been quoted as having said about the Babelicious Gavin Rosdell that his band never did that well. So... I don't know. She also claims that she didn't kill Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Regardless, at the very least, if this song is about Courtney, I at least take comfort in reading the lyrics as a diss track. Because he doesn't say anything here that would be flattering. He's calling her an insect kin. So she is family to insects. And that sounds about right to me. Yes. In his own way, it's the same kind of disjointed stream of consciousness, but he has some really nice imagery that he pulls from. I love the... Well, besides the red stripe and Vicodin, that sounds like a terrible combo. (laughs) Yeah, that that was what stood out to me as well. Deal with you like a bad spell. See the trail moon burns, red stripe and Vicodin. I really like that. I never noticed you. You were the brightest one. You were the white of me, just like the English sun. You caught the light again in a perfect way. Brightest threat of all is in the alleyway. Then he goes on to say, you are the demon seed. So I don't know why you're questioning whether or not this is about Courtney Love, Mark. (laughs) There's some, yeah, there's some good lines in here. Build a life out of all the Simtex. 
regardless of the Courtney influence, the song itself from the very beginning of this track, it's got this steady beat of 16th notes played on a snare drum that give the track a, a nice sense of urgency to it. <laughs> As the rest of the instruments and the vocals start simple and they build to match that sense of urgency until they all come crashing out in waves of Dreamboat Gavin yelling. And a little after the midpoint of the track, there's some extended guitar soloing that also builds and crashes. And then the whole track takes a shift in the, I, I'm going to say melody because that's the closest word I can think of right off to it. But the track as a whole feels more that it's being held together by sheer force of will than any actual melodic theme. I think it's a very dynamic and powerful song musically. It really is. I also think the next song is a very powerful song, but with a lot more gravity. See, from the title of track five, I would have assumed it was about Courtney Love. Cold Contagious? Yes. The fourth single released from the album. As we started reviewing this one and I started listening to it, I kind of had the opposite response to what I did with Our Lady Pieces Clumsy, where I ended up remembering a lot more of this album than I thought I did. I know you bought it when it was first released. Uh Uh-huh. And I have a very vivid memory of listening to it in your old Escort. And so we always listened to it wherever you drove. And so I never picked it up. And so I was surprised by how much of this I still remembered. I doubt I've listened to this album at all since high school. But I knew every word to every song. And I was shocked that I, I didn't know I did. This did get some radio play, but it didn't get strong radio play. It wasn't like the other singles. In fact, this was one of only two singles that the band released the singles that ended up not being included on their 2005 Greatest Hits compilation. Which is interesting. I wonder why. I don't know. Kind of like I mentioned earlier how the press liked to talk about how Razorblade isn't as radio-friendly as 16 Stone. Razorblade is still full of tracks, just like this one, where I constantly hear parts of other Bush songs throughout. It's still a very strong song. Could not agree more. And despite it being the longest song Bush has ever put out, the radio edit managed to shave off over a minute of it, so it still made it into normal radio length. And the song as a whole still has a solid groove to it, and it builds nicely. And Hottie Gavin gives a great, passionate delivery of the vocals. And so it's baffling that the song as a single wasn't better received, and the album as a whole wasn't seen as being as viable of a Bush album. I'm with you. It's surprising that the band, in response, didn't develop a tendency to start fires (laughs) and burn all of the reviewers down. That takes us to our next song, Song 6, A Tendency to Start Fires. This song, A Tendency to Start Fires, I have a very vivid memory of. Not because I love this song or it was great, but you and I saw Bush at the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion on May 10th of 1997. You saw them without me. Oh, that's a bummer. Okay. Because I know you would always talk about how they did a mind-blowingly amazing live version of Wild Horses. Absolutely. And I wasn't there for it, so I never got to experience it for myself. Okay, it wasn't you. They played with Veruca Salt, and they did the single best cover of Wild Horses that I have ever heard, and it is better than the original. It's just this beautiful, emotional, just amazing experience 
for this song that is forever embedded in my mind as one of my single greatest concert moments. And they go right from that to a tendency to start fires. And I'm like, man, that killed the mood. But a tendency to start fires. I do like this song a lot. It's on fleek. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of Tom and his out-of-touch terms, it is another very strong bush rock track that is most easily described as another strong bush rock track. And it sounds close enough to most of 16 Stone and everything else from this album to this point to not feel out of place in the Bush catalog. No. It's loud and it's hard and it's moving. So I dig it. I do too. And I don't know what else critics of the album or what station program directors who overplayed track after track just like this from 16 Stone wanted from Bush at this time. And how was this not it? I have no idea. The lyrics are great. The ending, just the repetition of Here's to Tomorrow, man. It's just, it starts on a high note and it ends on a great note. Yeah, and looking at these lyrics, they're just as kind of baffling as any good Bush song. They're just as bushy as any other Bush song. (laughs) I've talked briefly on prior episodes about my buddy Terrence, who for a short while we were in a band together called Next Time I See Murphy. And Terrence would frequently play Glycerine. And after the first two or three lines of it, he would just start making up his own lyrics because (laughs) it doesn't matter what you (laughs) sing as long as after a few you measures you just go glycerine as long as you hit that you can just say whatever you want he'd pull that out at house parties and people would go nuts for it that's awesome yeah because for the most part it doesn't matter what is coming out of gavin's beautiful beautiful mouth mm, now we're getting creepy <laughs> i'm gonna say that's where we went too far next up mouth 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 your mouth is song number seven, Mouth, which is a really popular song. I guarantee you, if you know Bush, you know this song. So we covered briefly how 16 Stone had such longevity because they kept dropping single after single from it over the span of the two years following its release. So I think, like you, I was surprised to learn in my research that Mouth was never a single released from this album. Yeah, it's shocking because it is such a popular song. The reason it's known, though, is because a remixed version that was used in both the film as well as the trailer for the film, An American Werewolf in Paris. And it was that remix that was then the first single off of Deconstructed. What was Deconstructed? Deconstructed was a collection of Bush songs that had been remixed. They'd been broken down or deconstructed and put back together. And Deconstructed was released in December of 97, so about only a year after Razorblade Suitcase. And the remix version of Mouth, which was released as the single for that, came out a couple months before Deconstructed was dropped. So there was overlap between the release of Mouth as a single from Deconstructed and the last two singles from Razorblade Suitcase. And that is probably major contributing factors to Razorblade Suitcase not doing as well as it should have, as the band was at that point fighting themselves, trying to promote two different newish things at once. It makes no sense. None. Give it a little more time. Put some space between them. Yeah. I can't think of any justifiable reason to do that. Yep. That's suicide. Next up. Track 8. 
straight no chaser we're gonna slow things down a bit and add our first bush song we're gonna encounter with strings we talked about how Steve Albini was the producer of this album, and they wanted to work with him because he was known for being able to capture the raw essence of bands, and they really wanted to do what is kind of a cliche thing that bands say they want to do, which is to capture their live feel on the album. Right. Bands love to say that, and then nobody is happy when it sounds kind of janky because live audio is never great. Right. But wanting to capture the essence of their live performance on a record on this track to live up to that claim, this would be the part in the show where everyone but Senor Guapo Gavin walks off stage so he can sing Glycerine all by himself in the rain. <laughs> the only problem is that they already put Glycerine out on the previous album. The perpetually pretty Mr. Rosdell had to sing and play something entirely different. And like you said, in order to make it more artsy, or maybe because Gavin was feeling lonely, they added some strings. And I don't know that the strings really justifiably add enough. There's a few instances of strings on this album, and it seems like it's just kind of, oh, hey, here's a cello for the sake of saying we had a cello, more so than having it actually follow the melody or add anything to the structure of the song itself. I'm going to agree with you on this song. I'm going to hard disagree with that statement in about five songs. Well, I will let history be the judge of that. <laughs> Track nine. History. History. This song is a, another feminist song that we have, supposedly, according to heartthrob Gavin Rossdale. This song is about abortion. Hmm. Yeah. And a, quote, baby believer who is anti-abortion until she became pregnant. That's supposedly his way of saying pro-lifer, not pro-choicer. Hmm. Yeah. We start a lot heavier than we did on the last song. It's abrupt. This does kind of go back to the bushy rock thing, but it still, to me, doesn't feel as complete. It's kind of like somebody didn't come back on stage after the break they took on the last song. Yeah. Which, for the next few tracks, feels like a running theme. It does. As we've talked, the last half of this album, except one song, really, it just doesn't hit the same way the first half did. Maybe I'm overthinking it, or maybe I just have some misfiring synapses. I think we can both agree that that's definitely the case, but I appreciate you taking one for the team to get us our segue to song 10 synapsis. The last song that we had history, it tried to do a transition to this song that I think failed. It did not bring it together. Yeah. Track nine fades out and then there's some random string bits and then those fade out and then track 10 comes in and there was nothing about those strings to connect any kind of theme or melodic idea from one to the other. It doesn't carry a note over. It doesn't do anything. It's just there for the sake of being there because why not? Mm -hmm. This song is a swing and a miss. It's a missed opportunity. You wrote on your notes that this feels more like a demo than a finished song. Yeah. And I agree. But the lyrics are really evocative. This is where we pull the title Razorblade Suitcase. This is where Musical Darling, Gavin, is repeating this really biting line, hell is where the heart is, like playing on that sense of home, belonging, connection, and just breaking it and saying, you know, your heart is what's going to take you into the depths of hell and suffering. It's poetically astounding. Hmm. I love the lyrics, but I don't love the song. That's a shame because the song itself, it's further lacking that fully developed, full band, fullness of sound. And that's, I think, the reason that Bush had been so successful up to this point. 
because you look at all of the singles that they've had, even all of the songs that aren't singles that they've had, they are a band that meshed very well together. Mm -hmm. All of the players just play well together to create the Bush sound. It's not the rock and roll hottie Gavin Rosdell sound. (laughs) It's the band Bush sound. Yeah. And I think that it's a sound that they were able to accomplish as a full unit. I read an interview where Gavin even admits that you could replace any of the members and you could probably create a band that was technically better, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't sound at all like Bush. No, no. One of the things about this album that we've talked about is how stream of conscious and disjointed some of the lyrics are at times. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can look at that and, and point and say, oh, look, heartthrob Gavin Rossdale is a poor communicator. Uh, track 11 communicator if there's a song on the album that we can point to and say that gavin rossdale is a poor communicator it is definitely song 11 communicator i agree this feels less like a full finished song than any of the ones before it it's very sparse Uh and before you go saying that it's an intentional aesthetic choice i'd remind you that track seven mouth Mm -hmm. very much feels deliberately sparse without ever once feeling like it was not a full band rock song I'm not going to argue with you at all. It feels like they're experimenting. They're playing with something here with Communicator, but they never actually got there. They never arrived at a cohesive song to release. Well, it feels like someone is experimenting, but I wouldn't say they are experimenting. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Because there is no they at this point. That's fair. That's fair. Again, it feels like half of them are on break. I really don't know what's happening with the rest of the band. I really, I, I'm just going to move past it. Song 12, Bone Driven. <laughs> this is the third single released from the album. Mark, you're not a big fan. You don't love it. I do. It's just a weird choice for a single since Pretty Face Gavin and guitar never seem to settle into any kind of actual catchy melody accompanied by equally uncatchy strings. So I was curious, and this song is their 43rd most common song on set lists for them, which is really low. It falls well below Cold Contagious, for example. As it should. I like this song a lot. What about it? I don't know. I just like just the guitar and and Gavin's voice. I don't need a repetitious melody. I just like hearing, I don't know, I dig it. But the reason that Glycerine worked as a bare bones, just Gavin and guitar song is because he actually has some sort of melody that he follows and a traditional song structure to the song. And this one, it feels like it's lacking both of those. It feels just, hey, here's a guitar thing and I'm going to say some random stuff along with this random guitar thing. And hey, let's throw some strings in it because we did it on the other one. Steve Albini talking about this record, he had said that this was the record that he had put more work into making than any other studio record he had produced up to that point in time. And this is the kind of song that makes me want to ask, where the hell is that work? (laughs) Because I don't see it. I don't hear it. Gavin could have done this alone in his bedroom with four track. That I'll agree with. So why did he fly Steve to London and pay Abbey Road studio prices for this to be the song that they put out? The lyrics just hit for me. I don't know. There's just something about that reflective, I was wrong and I will wait. And then going to that, a thousand lamps won't light or lift the dark. The rest of our lives might have already passed. 
that hits to me just this isolation this reflective expensive i think it hits me more now than it would have when i was younger Okay, I can buy into that. I mean, if you hadn't have guessed by now, I've never really paid much attention to Bush lyrics. So I'm looking more at the actual musicianship that's going into it. That's what I'm not seeing. But if you're seeing the lyrics, then that makes sense. Give it a shot. Check it out. See what you think. Okay. I'm paying attention to guitars and you're hearing distant voices. (laughs) Song 13, Distant Voices. The final song on the album. And while it's still not a big full band sound, the guitar parts on this one at least seem to have a more conscious melody that works to match the vocal delivery and the drums. And they all seem in sync as they rise and fall to change intensities throughout. And it feels more deliberate and less meandering than the last handful of tracks. Yeah, it does feel more produced. Steve came back from the bathroom on this one (laughs) to discover he'd left the tape running and Gavin had just laid down four extra songs while he was gone. I do want to reach out to our sponsor, songmeanings.com, for insight. And mm-hmm, all right, in 2009, found these lyrics and commented that this song in the PA community, very uplifting, even though I don't think it was meant to be interpreted that way. This song means something different to anyone who listens to it because it relates to whatever problem you're going through. Mm-hmm, all right. Now, do you know what they mean by the PA community? I think they're talking Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Dutch love the song. It could be about the public accountants. Ooh. Could be a personal assistant. So for personal assistance around the world, this is a very uplifting song. Thank you for telling us about that. Mm-hmm. All right. So are the lyrics on this one actually uplifting? No. Are any of their lyrics actually uplifting? Throughout this song, he sings about destroying himself and how he's going to find a way to the sun when he destroys himself so he can shine on. So, you know, I don't really think uh, everything fading fast and you sleep well in your head and things like that just don't feel very uplifting. But more power to personal assistance. Or public accountants. Yeah. Or the Pennsylvania Dutch. I mean, PA is a pretty big place, but I don't know who else they'd be talking to and referencing Pennsylvania specifically as a state. I don't either. You and I spent some time in a similar part of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I don't ever remember hearing this song while I was there. But No, but it's more of an eastern Pennsylvania thing. We were both in the west. This is true. We were. Yeah. Whatever. Hidden track, because it's the 90s. I saw mention that there was a hidden track. Distant Voices fades out, and then it comes back in for just a few seconds of some other like kind of little guitar noodling. Is there more beyond that? There were additional songs, music videos, and interviews on the interactive CD. Okay. So it's kind of like the Bonus Toad song. Kind of like the Bonus Toad song. But none of those ever had releases. None of them are very popular. I'd be interested in hearing if they sound more or equally produced to the rest of the back half of this album. It sounds like the rest of the back half of this album. I would say maybe even less produced. And I feel bad saying back half of this album because it's it's really like the back third of the album. To be fair to the band, to be fair to the album, to cut Steve a little slack here, it's not a straight down the middle division. No, no, it's not. But it is enough that going back and re-listening to it, it was very noticeable. And I don't remember it being that big of an issue. I think that was my biggest takeaway off of my first listen or two through the album as I started reviewing it to do this episode. Do you think part of that is because you have more experience with the recording and producing process than you did when you would have heard this 25 years ago? Maybe so. I think maybe the other bit of it was there was kind of that overlap in the success of Mouth 
Yeah. And even the deconstructed version of Mouth, it's not a super hard rock full band song. And so I think maybe because of that, there is probably just some overlap in my memory of hearing the songs from both Razorblade Suitcase and Deconstructed, and them kind of getting a little bit jumbled in my memory. And so I think that might also be a factor into why the difference in sound for these last few songs didn't stick in my head as being so different from the rest of the album. Yeah, that's fair. And how about you, since you are a Bush fan? I still liked it. Okay. Do you feel it's aged well? I do feel like it's aged fairly well. Mm -hmm. As you said, some of the tracks didn't hit me as well as they used to. Some of them hit me in a new way. All in all, I would still gladly listen to this album. I've listened to it a lot. I listened to it several times more than I did Beastie Boys, and I didn't get tired of it. I will say that, yeah, there were a few of these that I remember being good tracks that hit me, and I was like, yeah, this is still a really good song. Yeah. I will admit it. I had finished my first listen through, and I was like, wait a second, where's Letting the Cable Sleep? And then I realized that I had completely forgot about Science of Things being an album at all. Really? Because I don't have a copy of Science of Things. In my music collection, I've got Razorblade Suitcase, I've got Sixteen Stone, and I've got Golden State. So you skipped it all together. Somehow it had kind of just slipped from my memory. And I was like, oh, wait, yeah, they did have another album that came out while we were in high school. You know what's funny about that? I had completely forgotten about Golden State until I was looking at the discography. Golden State came out while I was working at the music store and I got the promo copy for that. Ah, okay. And that was one where I hadn't listened to Bush in years and I wasn't expecting much from it. And it hit and it hit a lot more rocking than I was expecting because they'd kind of started getting softer on Science of Things. Yeah. And so Golden State is one that I think is a completely underrated and overlooked Bush album. And I think it's a great album. They've got some good songs on it. That's one that I've kind of been evangelical about when it comes to Bush. Anyone who's like, oh, yeah, I used to like Bush. I'm always like, go listen to Golden State. So, Mark, Andrew Ricks, what are your top three? Well, Thomas Warren Crow coming in at number three is Distant Voices. Okay. I liked the vibe on that one. Cool. Number two, your last minute edition of the Courtney Love Note made me second guess whether or not I wanted to keep it on my list. <laughs> but then since it is a diss track about Courtney Love, Insect Kin solidified as number two. Okay. And I guess I'm feeling the Insect vibe because number one is Greedy Fly. Hmm. Interesting. Number three for me was a really close one. I think I landed on Bone Driven. Number two is Swallowed. Okay. And number one, I also went with Greedy Fly because it's so incredibly iconic. And good. It is good. I love the guitar in it. It's a great song. That one does sound like it was produced. <laughs> so that is Bush's Razor Blade Suitcase, according to Tom and Mark deal with it next episode we're gonna change things up just a little bit and we're gonna do our first one hit wonder roundup it's gonna be a good time until then check out the official website onceeverytwoweeks.com for links to social media and spotify playlists and don't forget to leave a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts thanks for listening this has been another episode of once every two weeks once every two weeks is brought to you in part by Bro Baracho Records. Mm-hmm.